Welcome back to another episode of Remyumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is called Spiritual Fallacies. Thanks for coming back to listen to another episode while I ruminate on some some thoughts I've been having about the logical inconsistencies of spiritual experiences. As I have deconstructed the spiritual experiences that I've had in my life, I've had to reconcile them and try to firmly place them in a space where they made sense to the outside experiences. Let me try and illustrate the point. When we're instructed to look into the veracity of the church, you know, we're, we're often told to read Moroni's promise. You know, pray about these things. God will answer you. God will tell you the truth. I would venture to say that many of the people listening to this podcast received that spiritual witness and believed firmly that it came from God and that it meant that the Book of Mormon was true, that Joseph Smith was a prophet. We followed this chain reaction of truths, tying the whole church together and all of revelation from the prophets to that one spiritual experience we had while praying about the Book of Mormon. In my life, it was it was a similar experience. I... At the age of 13, I wanted to know for myself. I knelt down, read my scriptures, prayed very, very hard. At the time, I'd had it in my head that I needed to finish the whole Book of Mormon to have that spiritual experience. As I was reading, I was in, I think I was in Jacob at the time, reading the allegory in Jacob which is ironic now because I consider the whole thing kind of mythology and allegory. So I'm reading in Jacob and I had the distinct thought that why, why should I wait until I read the whole thing? I could just pray now and, and God would answer me. And that's what I did. I knelt down, I prayed, prayed very hard for a, what felt like a long time for a 13 year old kid. And at the end of my prayer, I had the distinct impression that I already knew that it was true. And I interpreted that thought in my head as being revealed to me by God. And that, that thought that came into my head that I interpreted as being revealed to me by God became the basis for my testimony in the church. Now, what am I to do with that? Because I had many other experiences throughout my life where the truth of the church was confirmed to me through spiritual experiences. When I look into the history or the ethics of the church, they are not in alignment with this revelation, if you will, 
that I received as a kid and that I received on my mission and at other times in my life. So what am I to do about that? How can I reconcile this this spiritual experience with the obvious contradiction to reality? I want to provide a couple of things to think about that might offer an explanation. And I want to distinguish between value and truth. When we're looking at this, I think that there is a, an important distinction between the value of a spiritual experience and the truth of a spiritual experience. When we make this distinction between the value of a belief and the truth of a belief, we can investigate it more thoroughly. So, can a belief or a truth claim of the church have spiritual value, but not have any truth? So let's say, for example, the teaching that Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim to translate the Book of Mormon. Many people might have spiritual experiences confirming this as true to them, when it's not actually true. Why don't we distinguish this truth into two categories? We'll say that the belief has value, but no truth. Where we could define, in in this context, we could define truth in a religious setting as something that's consistent between belief and, and facts. So truth would be consistent with beliefs and facts, and value or something that that has value, offers spiritual fulfillment or enlightenment to the believer. So we could then we could then categorize each belief on this this spectrum of truth and value. You know, we could divide a section into an X and a Y, crossing each other, where the X line would be value, and the Y line crossing up and down would be truth. So any, any claim that the church makes will fall somewhere on the value spectrum and somewhere on the truth spectrum, where something might have a lot of truth in it, but no value, or conversely, it could have a lot of value in it, but no truth. And so each claim that the church makes would fit somewhere on this value and truth grid. There's lots of claims that the church makes. You know, God is real. He's your father. There's claims such as, as Jesus Christ died for your sins. Lots of different belief claims that the the truth of something, the truth of these claims is not really verifiable. So we couldn't, we couldn't look at them and decide that they're empirical truths. We cannot test the claim that Jesus Christ died for your sins, and we cannot test the claim that God exists. Those don't really even fall on the truth spectrum because we cannot verify them. But they do have spiritual value to the believer. You know, the, the idea that they'll be forgiven of their wrongdoings is a valuable belief. The idea that they have a loving father, a loving God, looking down on them, guiding them, and protecting them has spiritual value to a believer. 
But that spiritual value does not equate truth. As we're distinguishing the truth from the value, it has value, has meaning, but it is not an empirical truth. We could go through each belief and each claim that the church makes and place them on this this spectrum of, does it have truth? Does it have value? We could look at the prophets and their lives and the miracles that they performed. We could look at the modern prophets and, and the teachings that they've done. And we could place everything on this spectrum of, does it have value or does it have truth? And where does it land? So why, why make this distinction? Perhaps I'm too much of a pragmatist, but in my mind, this is how I had to look at the spiritual experiences, the very real spiritual experiences that I had to reconcile what to do with them theologically. Because for my whole life, I had come to the conclusion that these experiences that had spiritual value to me, they equated empirical truths because of their value. And that is not a logical way to interpret the world around us. If you go and watch the street epistemology videos and and listen to the testimonies of people from other faiths, you'll see that they hold deep spiritual value in their truth claims. And these disparate truth claims are all interpreted to be empirical truths about the world around us. So how can they all be true? They cannot all have empirical truth, but they can all have value to the believer. One of the common arguments against scientific thought that religiously inclined people make is that You can't trust science because it's constantly changing, but you can trust God because God does not change. (laughs) Sorry. uh, It's laughable because when you really examine God throughout history, you'll see that he has changed with every culture. Each person reinterprets deity in their own image based on their society and their cultural understanding of the scriptures. So it's, it's funny to me that they'll make this claim that the God is unchanging, but science is constantly changing. But it's precisely the fact that science changes that makes it so reliable. And you could, by extension, say that the fact that churches change for the better, oftentimes, is what gives them even more value. If we didn't allow religions to change, we would still be stuck in a time of polygamy and in the priesthood ban. We have to re-examine how we understand change, because it can be very good. It can also be bad. But historically, with the church, it has been good. These changes are good changes. It's precisely the fact that science changes that makes it reliable. When there's better evidence and better understanding... You re-examine and you reevaluate what you understand to be an empirical truth. I took these spiritual experiences that had value to me and interpreted them as empirical truths about the world around me. 
Here's an example. Because I had a testimony of the scriptures, I read them as literal. I read the stories in Genesis as having actually happened. The creation, the flood, Tower of Babel, Abraham, the enslavement in Egypt, the Exodus. All of these stories, I read them as literal because I equated the spiritual value of the church to truth. As I mentioned in a previous episode when I was discussing with Bill Real how my faith transition started, it started because I, stu- I was studying ancient Egypt. And the book that I was reading at the time scoffed at the idea of an exodus and balked at the concept of a literal Moses and cited all of these evidences against it. And as I was reading this, it just baffled me. There's no way that this could be true because Moses, Moses is quoted in the Pearl of Great Price. So of course he's a, he was a real person. Then as I read over the evidences, and I'll briefly cite a few, so, so I don't want to. I don't want to go too far into this, but I'll I'll briefly explain the way that we can corroborate if a historical figure actually lived. The ways that they do this are they look for writings from the person. They look for writings from contemporaries. Let's say, for example, thinking of Moses specifically, we would say, did the Egyptians write about Moses? Did Moses write about his experience? Another thing that we look at is, do we have access to the body of the person? When all of these things aren't present, which none of them are for Moses, we look at, when did his followers write about him? And the earliest datings of the Old Testament being written are right around 800 BCE. So that would put it about seven to five hundred years after Moses would have lived. So that, that can't be trusted as a, as a good historical source for the fact that he lived or not. And then we would look, you know, did anybody else write about him? When was the next time that anybody else wrote about him? So the, the first source from a believer or follower is five to seven hundred years after. If we are trying to look for a source outside of Judaism, when is the first time that we hear anything about Moses being mentioned? And we, we don't really have much until Manetho. And, and Manetho was an Egyptian priest that lived, that lived in the 3rd century BCE. So he can hardly be a reliable source for a uh, historical Moses. Now, none of, none of this means that there wasn't a Moses. What it means is that the stories that we tell about him are not historical. Could there have been one? Yeah. Could he have led a group of people out of Egypt, out of captivity? Of course. But did it look like it's portrayed in the Old Testament? Probably not. So this would firmly place him as a legendary figure. Now, that was a bit of a detour, and I apologize for that. All that to say that I held a firm spiritual belief based on my experiences that Moses was a real person and that the stories told about him were historical stories. 
as I made this distinction between the value of a belief and the truth of a belief, I was able to look at the story of Moses and see that there were things I could learn from the stories that our ancestors told, that the ancient Jews told about Moses and their Exodus origin story. There was spiritual value in it still. And I could hold that value and recognize that it had value while understanding that it did not have truth. A valuable part of my deconstruction of Mormonism was this, was examining each of my beliefs and determining if they had value or not, and also determining if they had truth. So this is what I did for my deconstruction process. I looked at each of my beliefs and tried to analyze if they had spiritual value or if they had truth and what I would classify as as an empirical truth. And I found that many of my beliefs only held spiritual value. But the problem that I ran into was that in the Mormon church, the literal truth of these claims is part of their spiritual value to many of the members. And I found that as I understood the history, the messy, dirty history of the church for what really happened, the spiritual value of these stories fell away and I lost trust in them. Now this, this pattern is, is something that we can use as we're deconstructing religion. Now this doesn't mean that you have to leave Mormonism altogether, but it's a healthier way to look at your beliefs. One of the sticking points that was hard for me to reconcile was the literal belief in the scriptures, both in the Doctrine and Covenants and in the Old Testament, that the history of the world is only 6,000 years and that man has only been on the earth for 6,000 years. Now, I think there's spiritual value in believing that that God placed man on earth and that God is watching over his people and caring for his people. I think there's value in that. But that doesn't mean the stories are literally true, especially not when we have a plethora of evidence that contradicts this belief. While discussing with faithful members of the church, the subject of Joseph Smith finding the altar that Adam and Eve prayed to God at after they were expunged from the Garden of Eden, this story always made me made me laugh. I mean, I, I always made the argument that there's no way that it could have happened. And I would cite all of the things that would have happened in between that time, you know, the flood, countless earthquakes, all of these different, these different logical arguments of why that could not have happened. And believers always throw the argument from incredulity, fallacy, back at disbelievers. And it's a valid argument. It's a valid logical fallacy. This is one of the fallacies that I often use is because I disbelieve that it happened. 
does not mean that it did not happen. And so you have to be careful about the way you word things. And so you have to phrase it a little bit more delicately. So instead of saying, it could not have happened because X, Y, and Z, you say, it is so unlikely to have happened because of X, Y, and Z. Because it could have happened. It's just that the chances are so very low. Now this, this argument from incredulity can also be looked at from the flip side. And this is basically what I've been doing this whole time. You could say the argument of credulity fallacy, which would be saying that something happened because you believe it happened. And that's the way my mind operated as a member of the church. I believed in all of these things, a literal Moses, a literal Adam and Eve, a literal flood. I believed that they were literal I was asserting that they were true events because I believed that they were true events. And just because you believe something does not make it true. It can still hold spiritual value, but that does not mean that it is true. There's one more logical fallacy that I want to talk about with regards to spiritual experiences. This one is the fallacy of false attribution. The false attribution fallacy, the, the person appeals to an irrelevant, unqualified, unidentified, biased, or fabricated source to support their argument. Now, I think most people interpret their spiritual experiences, and they do so in a way that is false attribution. Specifically, the false attribution of the spiritual experience being irrelevant to the conclusions being made. For example, many of the times that I felt the spirit, it was because I was reading about love. I was reading about a story that really, that really resonated with me in the scriptures and otherwise. And these, these experiences, I took and I made an irrelevant conclusion about the church based on these experiences. For example, when listening to a general conference story that tugs at your heart and you feel what you identify to be the spirit and you say that you are spiritually uplifted because of this story, but then you go and you make a conclusion that the man talking is called of God or that he was telling that story directly to you to impact your life, those conclusions are irrelevant to the spiritual experience. I'm not saying that you can't have spiritual experiences, and I'm not saying that you can't interpret them for your own life, but we need to be careful about how we interpret these experiences. Even as a person that does not believe in God, I still feel what I identified as a member, to be the spirit. I don't feel it at the same times as I did when I was a member. That that feeling comes to me, that elevation emotion comes to me when I'm reading a good book, watching an excellent movie, listening to poetry or music that really resonates with my soul. I still have those feelings. And before, I attributed them to deity. 
there's that famous quote from Gordon B. Hinckley, uh, the General Conference in, in 1988, where he was talking. He was a first, pre- first counselor in the First Presidency at the time. And this is where that quote comes from, where he said, If the Book of Mormon is true, the church is true. For the same authority under which this sacred record came to light is present and manifest among us today. This whole line of thought goes right into the false attribution. When you take a spiritual experience and make a conclusion about something irrelevant to the spiritual experience, and you have it, and then you make another irrelevant conclusion based on the previous irrelevant conclusion and going down. And I, I explained this chain reaction of conclusions that you that were guided to make in the church. When each one of these claims needs to be examined on their own for their merit, for their value, and for their truth. Could the Book of Mormon be true, but the church not be true? Of course, but how would you find out? Or on the flip side, could the Book of Mormon not be true, but the church be true? And how would you find out? Could the Book of Mormon be true? Could Joseph Smith be a prophet, but the modern day prophets be an apostasy? How would you find out? So then what if the Book of Mormon were false? The early prophets were not prophets, but the modern ones are. How would you know? Because all of these statements, they're not linked in the way that they're presented. Just because you believe that the Book of Mormon is true or that Joseph Smith was a prophet does not mean the prophets today are prophets in the same sense. We have stories of miracles and and wondrous things happening in the early church and all throughout scripture. But when you compare those stories to the modern day church, there is a disconnect between the reality that we live in and the stories that we believe are true. And so you can make a couple of different conclusions from this. You can decide that that the stories are true from the scriptures and they have value. You could decide that the stories have value but don't have truth. You could decide that they don't have value but they have truth. And I will say that there are historical figures in the scriptures, but most, most scholars agree that that doesn't start until about King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah is, uh, is right around um, 700 BCE in that ballpark. In, in a future episode, I'm going to discuss a little bit about our personal biases and how we see the world through different lenses. But I want to say this. It's very difficult for anyone to be completely to be completely objective about their interpretation of the world around them. It makes it even more difficult for people to look at their spiritual experiences objectively and to understand them objectively. If we go by the Occam's razor guideline 
of the simplest explanation is the is often the correct one these spiritual experiences would have dramatically different implications than the deep meanings that we give to them i'll relate again the story that i told to bill real in our discussion about the miracle that i witnessed as a missionary now i witnessed many of them and i'll i'll cover them throughout the podcast as they're relevant and and i'll say this one again because um because i think it's important while i was on my mission in chile i was teaching this woman who we referred to as an eternal investigator it was one of those terms that that we had in the mission i'm sure many missionaries had a similar term if not the same one for whatever reason i was able to connect with these eternal investigators and wherever i went i would pull out the book the area book and look through the list and i would just go and baptize them all and i had a lot of a lot of success doing that this woman that i was teaching la hermana marcia we discussed at length the church and she was from my understanding at the time she was living in sin and i i did my best to encourage and coerce her to make the choices to save her soul and i do want to say that that one of my biggest regrets in this life is having taught things that i don't agree with anymore and perhaps that's part of my motivation for doing this podcast i digress after being in the area for just about three months she finally committed to a baptism we're getting everything ready we've got the program we've got her baptismal outfit all ready to go and we get to the chapel a little early my companion and i and the other two missionaries that lived in the area there were four of us in that ward it was a it was a large geography so the four of us were getting together at the chapel to get everything ready and when we walked in we found that the lights were out there was no electricity in the whole building so we decided yeah we're gonna we're gonna push through we can we can do this without electricity that's not a problem so we go through to the baptismal font to start filling it up and we flip the faucet and nothing comes out the transfers had already come through and this was going to be my last weekend in the area and that could have been part of the impetus for this woman to get baptized at the time i thought that it was that that could have been the case but you know i was going to accept it anyway because she was making what i believed at the time to be the right choice so i looked at this this situation we had no light we had no electricity we had no water and i I looked at it as my brother of Jared moment. So I knelt down with my companion and the other two missionaries. And before I started praying, I, I told them both. I told all of them, I said, I need as much faith as you guys can muster because we're going to make this happen. And so I knelt down and I prayed and I asked God to turn on the electricity for me. And that I would figure out the water. And the minute I said amen, 
the lights turned back on in the building. And I was immediately filled with what I understood at the time to be the spirit. My companion and the other two missionaries, they were just in awe at what had happened. It was a real life miracle. And then they all three looked at me, wondering what the heck I was going to do now to fill the baptismal font, because there was no water still. Believe me, we checked. And the fact that the lights came on and the water didn't was also more evidence that this was a spiritual experience at the time. So I decided to call up the fire department. In Chile at the time, I don't know if this is the case anymore, it was an all-volunteer program. And there was a member of the ward that was a volunteer at the fire department. So I called him up. I said, hey, I am in a bind. If you guys aren't busy, I need you to come to the chapel and fill up the baptismal font. And this brother in the ward, he laughed. He says, he told me that he would go and check and he would get right back to me. Within the hour, we had a fire truck parked in the soccer, in the little futsal field on the side of the chapel. The, the fire hose threw the iron bars outside the window of the, cha- of the building, snaking its way through the, the small common room into the baptismal font. And this brother in the ward that was a fireman filled up the baptismal font for us. And the water was disgusting. You know, they, they don't need to use clean tap water. They just fill it up. And so it was murky. There was grass in it. It was all sorts of nasty. But I did my part. I told God to do his and that I would do mine. And after this spiritual experience, I, I took it as a confirmation that I was doing the right thing, that my mission had value, and that there was a deep spiritual impact that I was having on the lives of the people around me. But if we look at, if we take Occam's razor and apply it to our spiritual experiences, it knocks them down a peg because it's much more likely that the lights were just going to turn on anyway. Now, I'm not saying that you can't believe in spiritual experiences, and I'm not saying you can't find deep spiritual value in them. But the other conclusion I made, the conclusion I made that my, my mission had meaning based on the spiritual experience, that is false attribution. The experience was irrelevant to that, but I understood it that way. It has been an unpleasant experience going through all of my spiritual revelations and understandings and reevaluating them and trying to look at them as objectively as I can. It changed the way I see the world around me. Anyone is welcome to interpret their spiritual experiences, how they see fit. They're their own, they're personal. Some people have never had them. Some people have a lot of them. But we just need to be careful that we're not making illogical conclusions 
based on these experiences. The spiritual experiences I had kept me in the church for a lot longer than I would have had I not experienced them. And perhaps these experiences are also why I find value in mythology. I understand, I look at a lot of myth, not just Christian, Jewish, Muslim, but myth from all cultures as having a spiritual value. In another episode, I, I want to discuss Joseph Campbell's view of spirituality and how that influenced my understanding of the world. I hope that today's discussion was insightful and that you learned a new way to look at the experiences that you've had in your life and how to reconcile them with, with the truth that may not line up with the spirituality that you understand and how the truth does not always line up with the value of a spiritual experience. If you like the podcast and have enjoyed the episode so far, please like it, subscribe to it, write a review, send it to your friends. That's the only way that a new podcast like mine can, can get more traction and reach a wider audience. Thank you for listening today. I hope you have an excellent day.